Our scripture passage this evening is Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 18. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 18 can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,758, 1,758. I'm going to start the reading in 9 verse 1 and go all the way to verse 24. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. There's are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls she was told, the older, will, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose. That I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes? And some for common use. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Thus far the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Once again, I want to remind you that uh, in our evening services for the next few weeks that you have me up here, uh, we are going to be studying the canons of Dort. Uh, for this reason, um, uh, our Christian Reformed denomination has said this should be the year uh, that we do so, since it's the 400th anniversary. Since the Synod of Dort met in 1618 and 1619, 
to put forth uh, these doctrines as uh, summarized from the Word of God in the face of the Arminian controversy there in the Netherlands. Um, But as I uh, told you last week, uh, we usually think of these five points of doctrine that were in response to the remonstrance, the five points of the remonstrance uh, from the Arminians as tulip, which works great because it's from the Netherlands and tulips and, you know, we all like tulips. Um, But in the canons, it's actually not worded tulip, it's ultip, which doesn't really have as good a ring and also isn't a flower. So it's been popularized as tulip, but... um, it's, I think, important that we discuss what the canons of Dort are in the order that the canons put themselves in because they are responding in order to the remonstrance. And the writers of the canon of Dort at the Synod knew that election is the fountainhead of which all the redemptive blessings of God flow forth. That is to say, they thought it was more important to get right, to rightly understand the nature of God's electing love prior to fully understanding uh, the total depravity of man. So tonight we're going to be talking about the you in ultip. We're going to be talking about unconditional election. But before we do so... I thought you might want to hear exactly what the article uh, 14 says to me about the way that we should teach election properly. Article 14 in the Canons of Dorp says this, just as by God's wise plan, this teaching concerning divine election has been proclaimed through the prophets, Christ himself and the apostles in Old and New Testament times, and has subsequently been committed to writing in the Holy Scriptures So also today in God's church, for which it was specifically intended, this teaching must be set forth with a spirit of discretion, in a godly and holy manner, at the appropriate time and place, without inquisitive searching into the ways of the Most High. This must be done for the glory of God's most holy name and for the living comfort of His people. And that is to say there are many churches today who would say, We really shouldn't teach election, but Cottage Grove says election is taught in the scriptures and therefore because election is taught in the scriptures according to this by Christ himself, the prophets, the apostles, and in in the Old and New Testaments committed to writing in the Holy Scriptures, it should be taught for the living comfort, the lively comfort of Christ's people, the lively comfort of his people. So that's my weighty responsibility this evening, given to me directly from the Canons of Dort. So let's look at this. Theme statement tonight is pretty simple. Salvation is all of God. Salvation from start to finish. And I put it this way because I feel like no Christian... Whatever your background, whatever your theology is going to disagree with this, okay? Salvation is all of God. Nobody wants to disagree with that. 
But uh, we're going to try to show, we're going to show from the scriptures, and the scriptures being summarized in the teaching of the canons of Dort, exactly what we mean as Reformed Christians who hold to the canons of Dort as part of our confessional statement of faith by saying salvation is all of God. So the first point is going to be um, the entire human race. And we'll talk about what that means. The second part is, where's the difference? And the third part is election does not equal injustice. Election does not equal injustice. And hopefully, as we go through these points, you'll see uh, what it means. We'll put flesh on what it means that we confess that salvation is all of God. All right? So let's look at this first point. The entire human race. The entire human race. Well, I wasn't going to erase it, and then I did. So give me a second as I redundantly write it again. The entire human race. So typically when we teach the doctrines of grace, we start with total depravity so that we have a proper understanding of what it means that we are elected. And uh, if you look at the argument of Paul in Romans chapter 9 that we're looking at tonight, uh, you will find in a very real sense he does this. Uh, you, ch- you, you skip a page back to Romans chapter 8, and you see these words in Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 8. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what, the nature, what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So we have this category of sinful nature or flesh. Um, and it's a description for Paul of what happened because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 uh, and our first parents falling into sin. And Article 1 describes this for us. In the canons. It wants us to understand the gracious character of God's electing love, okay? And this is what it starts with in Article 1. God's right to condemn all people. Since all people have sinned in Adam and have come under the sentence of the curse and eternal death, God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to leave the entire human race, entire human race, in sin and under the curse, and to condemn them on account of their sin. So what we need to understand when we're speaking of the teaching of election is that we have all fallen into sin. This was done of our own will and our own accord. God is not the author of sin. And therefore, if God wanted to condemn all people and say, everyone goes to hell, there would have been no injustice done. No injustice done if God were to will that, to desire that. But here's 
here's the surprise. Here's the, whoa. Here's the, how awesome is God? Instead of doing that, he sends his son into the world so that all who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So the shock should not be placed upon the fact that God does not save all. The shock should be placed upon the fact that God saves any. That's what the canons adore, and that's what the teaching of Paul in the scriptures wants us to understand. The surprise is not that God doesn't save all. We shouldn't be surprised if God wanted to condemn all. What we should be surprised about is that God and his electing love through the history and the story of redemption chose to reveal himself through the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's why Article 1 goes straight from this entire human race, this mass of sinners who are, who are worthy to be judged by the wrath of a holy and righteous God to this wonderful, beautiful description that God showed his love by sending his only begotten son into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life and that God has ordained that the preaching of this gospel would go out to all people. That's what we're talking about here. Article 15 also describes this in part when it says this. When it says this. Moreover, Holy Scripture most especially highlights this eternal and undeserved grace of our election and brings it out more clearly for us and that it further bears witness that not all people have been chosen but that some have not been chosen or have been passed by in God's eternal election. Those, that is, concerning whom God on the basis of his entirely free, most just, irreproachable, and unchangeable good pleasure made the following decision. To leave them in the common misery into which by their own fault they have plunged themselves. Not to grant them saving faith and the grace of conversion, but finally to condemn and eternally punish them, having been left in their own ways and under his just judgment. Not only for their unbelief, but also for all their other sins in order to display his justice. Now we might say that if salvation is all of God and that there is no um, component of human responsibility in bringing about salvation, why is it that God doesn't save all? And that's what the canons are dealing with. And that, in fact, is exactly what Paul is dealing with. And Romans 9. And here's where it strikes against the pride of man. Here's where it's tempting to not teach this. Because unconditional election, the fact that salvation is all of God, strikes against the pride of man because it displays that God is sovereign and in control. Now, we all like that. We all think we're glad that God is in control over everything in this world, over nature, over all creation, over the changing of the seasons. But we don't want God to be in control of us. We don't want that. And we're going to get to more of that later when we talk about the natural feelings that come up when we discuss this uh, in the third point. But let's go to uh, the second point here which is the question, the question that the canons 
are seeking to answer in response to the Arminians. And that is, where's the difference? Where's the difference? Paul is heartbroken over the fact that his people, the Jewish people, are not coming to salvation in Jesus Christ as he would want, as he desired himself. It is, was Paul's custom to, every time he went to a city, first to the Jews in the synagogue and then to the Gentiles. But often, the Jews were hard-hearted and would not believe in Jesus Christ. It's something we witness over and over again in Jesus' ministry. The spurning of who Jesus is. The spurning. We don't want him as our Messiah. We don't want him to believe in him as our Messiah. And so Paul has this question. Why? And in verse 6, he says, it's not as though God's word failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. He's saying we need to make a distinction between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. Nor because they're his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So here is what we need to see. We need to see something that's powerful and profound, and that is, that often when we hear re- rejections to, to this doctrine as taught in the scriptures, um, we don't take into consideration all of redemptive history in the Old Testament. And that is to say that since the gospel has gone out, a shift has changed in the conversation. Because nobody says it was unfair for God to choose Israel over all the many other nations in the world. God didn't choose the Hittites. God didn't choose the Egyptians. God didn't choose anybody else but Israel. Was it because Israel was great as a nation? Many as a nation? Smarter, more intelligent as a nation? What distinguished Israel? Why is Israel different? Where does the difference lie, right? In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. And Paul makes it even clearer here. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand. So here is Jacob and Esau. Nothing good. Nothing bad. They have not proven themselves in any way. They have not disproved themselves in any way. They have not disqualified themselves in any way. They have not qualified themselves in any way. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So here it is. The difference, where's the difference? It's not in Jacob. It's not in Esau. It's not because Esau was more of a sinner than Jacob was. Have you read the story? It's not because God preferred mama's boys over dad's boys. It's, because, it's not because God liked Jacob for anything good in Jacob. And God hated Esau, for anything bad in Esau, 
It's that his purpose, his purpose might stand. The difference is in God. His choosing. That's where the difference lies. And that's where the Arminians were going off. Because they were saying, no, the difference is in the man. Because we believe that election means that God looked down through the corridors of time and his foreknowledge. And he saw those who would place faith in him. And he ratified their placing faith in him by electing them. And that's something we have to deal with. Because that brings up the question of our very own salvation. Or the way we view our salvation. Am I saved? Simply because I was sharper and was able to grasp the intricacies and complexities of the gospel. Am I saved simply because I was lucky enough to be born into a Christian family? Am I saved because of something that's different in me? That I had faith and they did not. What distinguishes me from my neighbor who has not placed salvation in Jesus Christ yet? Is the difference in me or is it in God? And the conviction of the scriptures and Romans chapter 9, Paul's teaching, and this is found elsewhere, Ephesians 1, the list could go on, is that the difference does not lie in me. It lies in God. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He will have compassion on whom he has compassion. And so the response from the canons in Article 4 and 5 is exactly this. We see that there is a different response to the gospel when the gospel goes out. That some believe, some accept it and embrace Jesus as their Savior, but others do not. And Article 5 says, what is the source of unbelief and faith? The, co- the cause or blame for this unbelief, as well as for all other sins, is not at all in God, but in man. That is to say, if we hear the gospel and we do not believe, that response is not in God, it's in man. For their fallen nature, for their fallen sinful nature. Faith in Jesus Christ, however, and salvation through him is a free gift of God. But if we do believe, that response is not in man, but in God. That response is not in man, but in God. And that's why in Article 9, it describes that election is not based on foreseen faith, of the obedience of faith, of holiness, or of any other good quality and disposition as though it were based on a prerequisite cause or condition in the person to be chosen, but rather for the purpose of faith of the obedience of faith, of holiness, and so on, election takes place. That is to say that election does not occur to ratify the goodness of faith. Election occurs so that faith may actually come to be. 
Election is the source of each of the benefits of salvation. Faith, holiness, other saving gifts, at all, at last, eternal life itself flow forth from election as its fruits and effects. All of salvation is of God. Salvation is all of God. Salvation is all of God. And that's what we need to understand. The difference is not in us. It's exclusively the good pleasure of God. We all together, a mass of fallen sinful humanity, some of us come to faith in Christ, some of us do not. But those who come to faith in Christ should never say that the reason I'm saved is found in my quality, my difference, my ability, my work of faith. No. It's all the grace of God. And I know what you're thinking. Because we often think this way when we talk about this. And many of you maybe even had these conversations. But that's not fair. That's not fair. Besides the fact that at the root of that statement is really the desire to be one's own sovereign. One's own ruler. It does not wrestle and grapple with the fact that true fairness with the comprehension and understanding of our being fallen in Adam and our being guilty of our own sins is that to be fair would mean hell. You want fair? You want fair. That's what you want? You want fairness? You want God to be fair? We all are condemned. Every single one of us. And that's why we need to see that what Paul is talking about here in Romans 9 He's, it, it, what the canons are talking about is not fair, is not injustice. They're talking about God's grace. Grace cannot be demanded. You cannot demand that God give equal opportunity to everyone to be saved. If grace is demanded, it ceases to be grace. If a governor calls and gets somebody off death row, he is not required to give every single person on death row out. It's a gracious act. So what we have here is not an issue of fair or unfair or just, unjust. What we have here is a difference between mercy and justice. If God saves one person in the entire world, he is merciful to that one person. 
And every single other person receives the justice that they deserve for sinning against a holy and righteous God. But that's not even what we have. What we have is a number so numerous it cannot be counted. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will praise the Father and the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world for His mercy in redeeming us. And everyone else who is condemned to hell is condemned to hell on the basis of the justice that they deserve for their sins against holy and righteous God. Election does not equal injustice. Election equals grace. In love, he predestined us. Election means grace, the grace of God. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 9, 19 through 24. He's saying, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? Why does God still find fault? For who resists his will? And this is the question that I want to put before any of you. Or anyone that might bring an objection against this. That if you're reading Romans chapter 9, and the feeling that you get is, this is not fair, this is not what it could really be saying. It can't really be saying that this is why I'm saved and other people aren't saved, that it's all of God. It can't really be saving, saying that salvation is all of God, that I want you to understand that you're on the right track because that's exactly what Paul believes someone is going to say when they're reading this. He anticipates the rejection. He anticipates those who are going to say, but this is not fair. And in Romans 9, 8, 19, he says, one of you will say to me, why does God still find fault for who resists his will? And Paul responds, but who are you? Oh man, to talk back to God. Remember how we said that the teaching of election needs to not try to Reach beyond the veil and look into the things that God has not revealed to us. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying, who are you, O man, the created one, to speak back to God, the creator? And he gives this image of a potter who makes out of the same lump of clay, same lump of clay, fallen, sinful lump of clay, all worthy to be condemned and judged and sent eternally to damnation and hell. Same lump of clay. Does God not have the right to make out of that clay those for salvation and those for judgment? How can we say no? To the God who is the creator of all things and is good above all. Article 6 and 7 speaks to this. Article 16 speaks to this. Article 18. And 6 and 7, it tells us about God's eternal decision. That fact that some receive from God the gift of faith within time and that others do not stems from His Eternal decision. 
And then this especially is disclosed to us his act, unfathomable and as merciful as it is just, of distinguishing between people equally lost. And in election, Article 7, it gives this wonderful, beautiful definition of this teaching. Before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, he chose in Christ the salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than others, but lay with them in the common misery. He did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be the mediator, the head of all those chosen, and the foundation of their salvation. And so he decided to give the chosen ones to Christ to be saved, and to call and draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through his word and spirit. In other words, he decided to grant them true faith in Christ, to justify them, to sanctify them, and finally, after powerfully preserving them in the fellowship of his Son, to glorify them. Article 16 talks about this difficult teaching of reprobation. It's something that we often don't ponder, for it's difficult to think of. But the reality is if God has chosen some, it means he has not, by default, chosen others. And this is really where the, the issue of injustice or unfairness comes up. And I believe the canons really pastorally respond to these uh, uh, feelings about reprobation, the, the idea that because God has chosen some to salvation, uh, it means he's passed over others and left them in their sin. Listen to these words. Those who do not yet actively experience within themselves a living faith in Christ or an assured confidence of heart, peace of conscience, a zeal for childlike obedience, and a glorying in God through Christ but who nevertheless use the means by which God has promised to work these things in us. Such people ought not to be alarmed at the mention of reprobation, nor to count themselves among the reprobate. Rather, they ought to continue diligently in the use of the means to desire fervently a time of more abundant grace and to wait for it in reverence and humility. On the other hand, those who seriously desire to turn to God, to be pleasing to Him alone and be delivered from the body of death, but are not yet able to make such progress along the way of godliness and faith as they would like. Such people ought much less to stand in fear of the teaching concerning reprobation since our merciful God has promised that he will not snuff out a smoldering wick and that he will not break a bruised reed. However, those who have forgotten God and their Savior Jesus Christ and have abandoned themselves wholly to the cares of the world and the pleasures of the flesh, such people have every reason to stand in fear of this teaching as long as they do not seriously turn to God. Here is what it's saying. It's saying, if you feel in this moment that you are unsure, but you have committed yourself to the means by which God converts sinners, that is the preaching of God's word, the reading of God's word, prayer, then you should not worry yourself. The question is not, am I elect? The question that needs to be in the forefront of our minds is not pondering these great and mysterious eternal doctrines, eternal decrees. It is to say, do I trust in Christ? Am I trusting in Christ? Even a slither, even a mustard seed. Do I want Christ who is all glorious to me? 
If you are someone who often ponders about the weakness that they have, who has doubts and so on and so forth, you most of all should not be worried about this, about considering maybe I'm not elect. That's not the question. But you should be assured that God is merciful. That he has promised that he will not snuff out a smoldering wick, will not break a bruised reed. You should ask yourself one question. Do I find Christ to be most precious as a savior of sinners? Do I find Christ to be most precious as a savior of sinners? In Article 18, it talks about the proper attitude toward these teachings. To those who complain about this grace of an undeserved election and about the severity of Of a just reprobation, we reply with the words of the apostle, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? And with the words of our Savior, Have I no right to do what I want with my own? We, however, with reverent adoration of these secret things, cry out with the apostle, O the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways beyond tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has first given to God, that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. People of God, there's two things that this teaching, I believe, is supposed to bring forth in the hearts of Christians. And that is, first and foremost, worship and praise of the God who in his grace and his electing love has redeemed you. And the second thing that should be brought forth from this teaching of election is a strengthening desire to see God glorified in the salvation of sinners. Because if there's anything that I have learned from this teaching that salvation is all of God, it means that when I go out and share the gospel, I can't mess it up. It means that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15 that we should not be concerned that all our works are not in vain. That God uses the means of the preaching of the gospel, of the sharing of the good news, of the fact that God has reached into this time in history and saved out from a pile of sinful humanity, a people unto himself, that he may be glorified as the savior of sinners and the punisher of those who have sinned. That God will not come that Christ will not return in judgment until every single one of his little flock, his chosen ones, his precious ones, whom he has placed his love and affection on, have come into the fold. And in his wonderful grace, and still a shock to me, he uses us to bring about that great redemption in history. And the final thing that this should bring about in the lives of Christians is a deep, heartfelt humility. A humility that says, Why me, God? 
why save me? And all the answer that we have from his word is this. Because I wanted to. Because you. I have chosen. And I have loved. Since before the foundation of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this wonderful and beautiful teaching found in your word that we might know the comfort that comes from this teaching as your people. We might know that you, God, are just and you are merciful. That salvation is all of you, none of us but that we we have been redeemed by you, that you may reveal your grace in us and through us. And we pray, Lord, all the more that all whom Christ has died for may come to know the depth and the wonder of your electing love. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.